Open your Bibles to chapter 13, the gospel according to St. Luke. I'm going to read from verse 10 to verse 17. It's just a wonderful, wonderful story. When we enter under Jesus' influence, we sense that he's loosened our bonds. He's broken our chains. He's set us free. Wonderful example of that in our text today. Hear God's word, Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the rule of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it out to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. The grass withers and the flowers fade. This wonderful word endures forever. It's written for you today. It's kind of like the Charles Wesley hymn, And Can It Be?, That stanza that we love, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's an example of that. If you've been given a new heart, you've experienced something of that. Jesus came to loosen our bonds, to untie the yoke, break our chains. This story is another one unique to Luke. If we don't have Luke's gospel, we don't have this story. So in God's providence, as he inspired scripture by the Holy Spirit, we're thankful for how he used Luke and Luke's sensibilities and thoughtfulness to include this story in Holy Scripture, another beautiful one. So it's also the last instance in Luke in which Jesus appears in a synagogue. And probably as you put the gospels together, probably the last time he's in a synagogue. You know, Luke places a lot of emphasis on Jesus going to synagogue, if you read through the gospel of Luke. And, but this is the last time, and it just seems like he may be barred from the synagogue. You know, hostilities get too great as he's arriving into Jerusalem. So three points, the woman's condition, then Jesus's compassion in conquest, and then finally Jesus's confrontation, the woman's condition first. So again, Jesus in the synagogue, 
If you go back to chapter 4, verse 16, it's a wonderful verse that says that it was Jesus' custom. It says in 4.16, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And we just see this, Jesus' habit to, to gather in corporate worship. And that's just what he did. He taught, he gathered. If anyone did not need the ordinary channels, the ordinary means of grace, you'd think it was Jesus. And yet Jesus needed them. He was faithful to be with God's people. And so he's there on this Sabbath day and there's a woman there and she too is in attendance. And this woman there in the Sabbath has a disabling spirit, a spirit of weakness and ailment and sickness. Her condition isn't just light and passing. She's had this disabling spirit, crippling spirit for, for 18 long years. And it's caused her to be bent over, unable to straighten herself, raise herself up, or stand, stand erect, stand tall, stand up. She's, she's severely hunched over. And our text says she couldn't fully straighten herself, but I agree with those who say it's more, more than that, it's she couldn't straighten herself out at all. She was bent over. My main Greek lexicon says that that word is also a medical technical term. So commentators speculate on what she had and some you know, wonderful words here, uh, spondylitis ankylopoietica, that's what she had. Or spondylitis deformans, I'm sure those are terms we use a lot. So, she had something like that. It was this fusion of her vertebrae. It causes this chronic pain and stiffness of her spine, made even this rigidity, this restricted movement. And the deal is, is it could have even spread to other joints, her ribs, hips, knees, feet, and even potentially moving into her lungs and her heart. It was a serious issue she had, severe illness, that she had, and not only was it a physical medical condition, but there was a spiritual element, and that's really what Luke focuses on. And it doesn't mean she's a wicked woman. Luke's description of her is quite the opposite. He shows her as a woman of piety. She's, again, there in corporate worship amid much pain. She's immediately glorifies God when she's healed, and Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham meaning a child of faith. But nevertheless, in some sense, in her case, and not all cases, but in hers, this disability is caused by a demonic spirit. And Jesus says that it's Satan that's kept her in bonds for these 18 years. It appears that Satan has exerted a more direct influence on her physical state, causing this hardship and bondage. Think of Paul's thorn in the flesh, that messenger of Satan sent to harass him, except that her condition is worse than Paul's. And we know that one of Satan's weapons to keep us from Jesus is physical suffering. He, he can, on occasion, use that. Mark spoke today about that in Africa. He's called a murderer and a destroyer, he can go at us in a number of different ways with the goal of keeping us from 
Jesus. So in her, we see this direct spiritual conflict going on. There's battle lines drawn in this lady who's been so mistreated for so long. And if we relate that back to Jesus's earlier teaching, chapter 11, verse 21, if you recall, Jesus wanted to describe the evil one. He describes him as a strong man, this, like this powerful prince who tries to keep people enslaved in his palace. And a stronger one has to come and release them and rescue them. And we see this happening with this woman. He's trying to keep her to himself. So we have to just imagine what goes on in the mind and heart of this lady and what she deals with, what kinds of anxieties and discouragements and temptations and doubts and fears and loneliness that she may deal with in this spiritual attack. What, what would you, you know, deal with with a chronic illness like this? How can you put yourself in her shoes? And let me just underscore again, it's meant just a whole lot to me this week that she's at worship. You know, she didn't, she didn't stay home. Everything would tell her to stay home and stay, stay isolated and maybe God's not looking, God's ignoring her and others aren't paying attention to her. It makes me think of, um, you know, growing up, there was this man named Homer Lee Howie in First Pres Jackson. He was a friend of my parents and leader in the church. And, when he grew old, he had this severe back surgery. And so I'm right out of college. I'm missing church for all kinds of reasons. And he has a severe back surgery. His wife, every Lord's Day, would bring him in in this chair that reclined backwards right up at the front row underneath the pulpit. And my friends and I were looking at each other and goes, like, he doesn't miss. Like, he's there. Like, it must be, it must be important to him to put himself under the means of grace like that, it made a huge impact on us. And I love the fact that we have examples here in our local fellowship. But you just imagine what's going on with her. Satan would want to keep her holed up and isolated. But she knows to make it, to survive, she needs the means of grace. She needs the word and the sacraments and prayer and fellowship, those ordinary means that are important on our own, but also especially in the public use of them. And so you think of this lady and how God sustained her through these years, through that, and now on this Lord's Day, in a dramatic way, Jesus looks at her and does something new and different and brings liberation into her life and heart. So what do we do when we feel the bondage of the evil one? And he's always wanting to, to keep us by ourselves, alone, apart. Well then, Jesus' compassion and conquest, second point, while Jesus is teaching, so he notices this suffering woman. And I just love it, among all those present, lo, behold, there's a woman. He sees her. And it's remarkable because in that culture, they viewed women as less important than men. Like you needed 10 women, you needed 10 men to start a synagogue. You didn't really need women to have a synagogue. And in public, men shunned women. Furthermore, in that culture, as we saw last week, severe calamity and infirmity, it was kind of, there was a suspicion that if you suffered in some egregious way, 
that you did something to deserve it. And so you have all these barriers that she could feel in addition to her, her illness and cultural perceptions that Jesus knew. And yet Jesus, in the midst of that synagogue, far from overlooking her, ignoring her, viewing her invisible or disregarding her, he sees her and Luke makes a big deal about that. He sees her there. He notices this woman in a special way and you know Jesus's heart. You know that he pays special attention to people when they're at their weakest and their neediest. They're struggling the most, maybe most immersed in sin, y'all, sin. Maybe it's self-inflicted. And he, and he pays most attention to you. Far from disregarding you. You get the sense that he's on the lookout and his eyes are open and he's seeking out the hurting. And that's what grace is and he is grace himself. That's his heart towards the needs in our world. And we see that in his earthly ministry. You see, he's the yesterday. Hebrews says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like when you see that, that's what he's like in heaven. And so Jesus takes the initiative. He's on the move. He doesn't have to, but he does. It would be perfectly fine if he just preached. But he doesn't stop with empathetic feelings. He acts. And don't you see a picture of grace here? It's sovereign grace in action. And it's the same towards us. In the worst demonic bondage that we can ever experience, that of our guilt and pollution of sin and enslavement to sin that he moves out in sovereign grace. So Jesus sees her, then he calls her over to himself, like he asks her to walk forward, like that dignifying her. He lays his hands on her, thus identifying himself with her 18 years of hardship and, and demonstrating that the source of her healing is none other than he himself, and with his hands laid upon her, he says, woman, you are freed from your disability. Like you were released, set free from your physical and spiritual weakness and bondage. And immediately she is made straight. She raises up her head, she stands upright, and she erupts in praise and thanks to God for his mercy and grace to her, to see her in her physical and spiritual affliction to heal her and restore her. And surely that too is to make us think, you know, her physical posture, surely that change also indicates a change in her spiritual posture from being downcast in sorrow to being lifted up her face in joy and gratitude to God. And it shows not only Jesus' compassion, but also his conquest. He's undoing the works of the devil. The evil one's no match for him. He may have had this woman safe and secure, entrenched for 18 years, but in an instant, by the word of Jesus' mouth, he rescues and restores her, and it makes us realize the power of Jesus' word. Something that seems like another book there's a power in that word used by the Spirit 
to liberate us from the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. He came to destroy works like what the devil was doing to that woman. That's according to Jesus' mission statement, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, day acceptable to our God, Luke 4. But just makes us realize that the ultimate conquest is still to come. He's made he, making his way to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem because he sees us in our need. He saw us before the foundation of the world. In Jerusalem, he's gonna more than put his hands upon us to identify with us in bondage. He becomes our sin for us. He takes everything the devil can throw at him, more than 18 years of bondage, like an eternity of suffering he takes upon himself. And he does that to release us from the curse of sin, to bring us out into the light of God that we can stand upright in God's presence. This gospel work that we see here. And so finally, Jesus' confrontation. So before such a miracle of God's love and power, you'd think that there would be this uniform, outpouring, unbridled, extravagant display of praise and glory, tears, not a dry eye in the place to see a woman come through that. And yet there's this ruler of the synagogue who is just seething with the opposite emotion. He's the man in charge of maintaining the order and conducting the services. He's the guy in charge. He's the leader of the 10 elders that you need to run a synagogue. So his attitude is not just his, it also reflects the other leaders. And the rule of synagogue is indignant and angry. And so he stands up and addresses the people. He says to the people, right after this event, while they're glorifying God, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. It's like this indirect, rebuking the woman. You know, but even more than rebuking her and like putting aspersions on her, it's really an indirect against Jesus. His issue is with Jesus. He just doesn't have the guts to stand straight up with Jesus and go toe to toe with him. So he rebukes Jesus by rebuking the crowd. It's this passive aggressive thing. He blames the woman, though Jesus took the initiative throughout. There's something about Jesus' grace that just doesn't fit into his understanding of the law. And so, to his credit, the synagogue ruler refers to the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. The commandment says, the fourth one about the Sabbath day, says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And so the synagogue ruler and others like him view what Jesus did as a work, something to be prohibited on the Sabbath day by the fourth commandment. The, the only issue there is, and it's a key issue, is that he has failed to see how the Old Testament interprets the command. All the commands are interpreted by the other texts of scripture. 
And the other texts of scripture would say, well, giving rest to a person on the day of rest is entirely appropriate. Isaiah 58, which we read today, that's the issue there. It's, Isaiah 58 is a stinging rebuke for not loosening bonds to give rest to people on the Sabbath. So his zeal to guard the Sabbath leads him to hold to the letter of the law and fail to see the intent spirit of the law. And underneath there is this just legalistic frame of mind, this holding on to observable or measurable rules to be accepted to God and rather just resting in God's grace for acceptance. And we see something about what legalism or self-righteousness does. And we felt this. We, we, have, we have the same struggles and it tends to constrict the heart. We can't enter into the joy of another and we can't enter into what God has done for this woman. And so Jesus looks at the synagogue rulers and says, you hypocrites. And we need to see that part of the reason Jesus has even healed this lady is because if you recall in chapter 13, six through nine, that he has compared the leadership to a fig tree that was supposed to bear fruit and didn't bear fruit. And so now figuratively speaking, he's gone into his vineyard and he's inspecting the fruit. What do you like? What's your heart like? Is there genuine faith in God here? And he's looking at the synagogue ruler, he's just not finding it. He's saying, you're getting really close to the fig tree being cut down. I'm showing you a sign and you're not holding to it. Or, Chapter 12, verse 51, you know, part of Jesus' mission is to bring division. And he's dividing here. He's exposing hearts here. And that, too, is gracious. You, you and I need that. Like, you, we need our, our hard, stiff, rigid, calcified hearts exposed to us. And Jesus, in his grace, does that for us. And so Jesus confronts him and all those like him this way. He goes, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it out for water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? This is a, I mean, this is a crushing rebuke. Because see, the rabbis themselves in their interpretation of the fourth commandment, they themselves permitted certain kinds of work. And they were very concerned about how their animals were treated. And so they permitted a person on the Sabbath day to untie his animals from their stalls and lead them out for pasture and for water. And this was entirely appropriate to do. And so Jesus rebukes them for this gross hypocrisy and inconsistency. He goes, if it's right to loose your animals so they can eat and drink on the Sabbath day, if that's an aspect of rest, surely it's even more right to loose a daughter of Abraham who's been bound for 18 years on a Sabbath day. If, if you won't wait one day before you untie your ox and lead it out for a drink, then surely you won't require a daughter of Abraham to wait another day to be loosed from her bondage as she waited 18 years. I mean, surely you wouldn't do that. Don't you see you're taking better care of your animals 
and showing more compassion to your animals than you're doing for people, to daughters of Abraham. It's embarrassing. What does that show about your heart? And so Jesus says it's not just appropriate to heal her, to give her rest on the Sabbath day, but he actually says you ought to do it. It's a moral obligation and necessity. If it's the day of rest and she's bound up and can't rest, then he must grant her rest. Not doing so would be wrong. And so once Jesus exposes and unmasks what's entailed in the synagogue ruler's rebuke, he stands humiliated and ashamed. He probably didn't, wasn't even aware that all that was boiling up in his heart. And how self-righteousness blinds us really to what's driving us and motivating us. And it's grace when we're alerted to that. And the people just are overcome with gladness and joy at all the things that God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they hadn't even seen anything yet. Because they hadn't seen the cross and the resurrection yet. What might the glory and joy and gladness be for God's people to think that Jesus crushed death and crushed hell in order to liberate us and bring us in the kingdom of God and give us the gift of eternal life which you receive by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, today then, do you see yourself in the woman maybe? Maybe you sense yourself bound up and not free. And our idolatries and our sin patterns, they just do that to us. They bind us up and tangle us. They can't give what we hope they give us. And Jesus says, you don't have to worship these, you can worship me and enter into the solid foundation of acceptance with God, what you're created for. Well, do you see yourself in the synagogue ruler today that maybe an inability to rejoice in the woman's deliverance and maybe recognizing that maybe there are, maybe I'm dealing with a, a self-righteousness or pride or autonomy in my life. Especially won't you see Christ today in his compassion and his conquering salvation. The fact that he sees you today he calls you, he's calling you through this sermon. That he lays his hands upon you, identifying with you, that he speaks his word to you. That he died for you, that you might have life. How about us as a church, do we have eyes that are open? Are we aware of the deep needs of those here? Jesus is always pushing out too, are we aware of the needs around us? Are we looking, are we looking like, are we aware that we're in a spiritual warfare every day? Wonderful week to talk about putting on the full armor of God this week. Are we aware of that? Are we bringing such a savior to such a needy world? I, I'm always very thankful for Lawndale and the, um, the goal to give 25% of our, all our revenues to benevolences and missions and the joy of having supported missionaries like the Mayus for so many years. It's an aspect of bringing liberation to people in bondage or even VBS, the children giving their ties for food and, and glasses this week. Very thankful for how in so many ways you are involved in different ways in our community. Tupelo is a better place for your gospel witness. 
and then as we think through, we think how, like how might we push forward even more as a, as a people? Like even when we're having our conversations about our building and our location and different things like that, which are so good, such good conversations to have, might passages like this be driving that discussion? Like the kingdom is on the move and we're looking for it. And we want to give Christ with all his compassion, all his conquering mercies to many who are still in bondage. And might we enter into every day this even greater joy and gladness that he really has covered and washed our sins. He really has granted us righteousness. We are united to him by faith. One day he's gonna restore all things. He's even now bodily in glory. And he reigns and he's putting all his enemies under his feet. And amazingly, he brings us into that wonderful work, which is surely something we can give our lives to more and more in all the individual callings and ways he's brought us into his kingdom. And may it be so more and more. God's people said, amen. Let's stand.